Good morning, guys. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Merry Christmas. Uh, Advent. Advent's a time to look back in order to look forward, right? Advent is a, a word that means coming, and, and during the season of Advent, it's a season of waiting for the coming of Christ, right? It's, it's preparing our hearts to look back, uh, to focus on the gift of, of Christ, right? That God became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, that he might live the life we should have lived, die the death we deserve to die, and, and then rise again, right? Uh, he was our substitute in judgment so that we could be his partner in blessing, and he was born on mission. And we look back in order to look forward, right? We look back to the first coming of Christ to awaken our hope for the second coming of Christ. It's very easy for us to lose our way. It's very easy for us to forget where we are in the big story, right? We, we get confused a little bit and think that, that this life is all there is, that, that this promotion is, is vital for my life, that, that, that this failure is catastrophic, right? We lose track of the fact that our greatest problem has already been solved, our greatest debt has already been paid, our greatest blessing has already been given, right? So, so we look back to look forward, and that orients us in our day-to-day life. That helps us remember where we are in the big story of God so that we can live by faith and, and uh, navigate the complexities of life, right? Uh, because he has come, he is coming again, right? So let's do this together, right? He has come, he is coming again. It, we look back to look forward. All right, we are a weary world. We're weary from stress, from conflict, from uncertainty, from disappointment, um, and we've been looking in this sermon series how the coming of Christ and the good news of who he was and what he did um, gives us comfort for our weariness. It rejuvenates our soul. It revives our spirits, right? Um, we, two weeks ago, we looked at how there was comfort for us in our loneliness, that God meets us in our isolation and, um, and walks with us and, and gives us comfort in it, but also gives us community. Um, to step out of it, right? We looked last week at how he comforts us in our fear, how he meets us in um, our, our vulnerability and uh, our, our, our defensiveness and calls us out of fear and into love. And this week, we're going to be looking at comfort, how he comforts us in our anger. Um, and you're like, that just doesn't sound like very much of a, a Christmas theme. Well, I don't know what your family is like, but... Growing up, it was definitely a theme in my family. Um, anger just seems to go with it. I, I hate to say it, but but we get short-tempered, we get tired, we we get we get exhausted, um, we get frustrated, right? Um, and beyond that, I mean, honestly, um, as a culture, we're angry people. I mean, I could list a thousand things that make us angry, right? Pandemic restrictions, politicians, stupid people, slow drivers, people who betray us, the SBC, the PCA, the IRS, how badly Netflix messed up Cowboy Bebop. I mean, there's just an endless list of things that make us angry, right? That, that provoke us, that, that, and, and, and we're, we're an outraged culture. We live our lives wanting to know who we should be at, at mad at and why. Right. In fact, if you if you look at the news channels, that's basically if you want to look at the the headline news channels. I'm talking not the the, the headline news that's all news, but I'm talking the personalities. Um, they survive on outrage. That's what they survive on. They tell you why you should be mad, how mad you should be, and who you should be mad at. So at the end of the program, everybody's united in their outrage. We just love it. We love our anger. We love our outrage. Uh, we are in America, honestly, an angry people. And there are thousands of reasons. Some are good. Some are bad. But here's the thing. Under it all, 
I think if you look at the anger under the anger, I think the, the root cause, I think the root anger is that we just know things aren't the way they're supposed to be. If you look at the anger under the anger, you look at why we're angry. You look at what really provokes us to anger. Now, all the stuff on the surface, we get, we get angry about dumb things. We get angry about things we shouldn't get angry about. We get, but, but at the root of it, it's just this, this, we know it, man. We know it. We feel it in our bones. The bad things aren't supposed to happen. That evil isn't supposed to exist. That, that death is an unwelcome intruder. Things are not the way they're supposed to be, and we know it. And it makes us mad because there's nothing we can do about it. We're frustrated with it. We're, we're victims of it. We feel helpless in the face of it. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And I'm just going to tell you, I actually think that's a pretty good reason to be angry. I, I don't, I, I'm, anger, anger itself isn't sinful. There are good times to be angry. There are good things to be angry about. The challenge is to be angry in the right circumstances, to the right degree, at the right things. <laughs> we have a problem with that. Uh, but anger itself is actually uh, not an unhealthy emotion. It's a necessary human emotion. In fact, in, in Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, be angry, but don't sin. So he actually commands us to be angry. There are certain circumstances. There are certain situations. There are certain things that should provoke within us anger. But in our anger, we are never excused in our sin. We're never excused in, in making it about us, our glory, our reputation, our comfort, um, our, our wounded um, sense of ego. Be angry, but do not sin. So here's the question. How do we feel the right kind of anger, holy anger, without succumbing to the wrong kind of anger, which is selfish and sinful, full of resentment and bitterness? Well, we need to be rooted between the advents. We need to be looking back to the fact that Christ came and looking forward to the fact that he is coming again. That this story that we're living is being um, hijacked by a greater story. That our daily life, uh, as random as it may seem, is anything but random when you pull out to the highest level and look at the big picture. That we have a God who is telling a story of redemption and restoration. That God is working to redeem us from this broken world and to deliver us into a recreated one. And if we're going to be freed from our outrage, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, we need to be anchored in the hope that we have a God who is committed to setting all things right and that He's willing to pay the price to make it happen. All right, we're going to be looking at John chapter 1 this morning and John chapter 11. So open your Bibles to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 886. And uh, go ahead and open up your apps if you're using your phone or whatever. We're going over to John chapter 1. Uh, we're just going to be looking at the first three verses, and then we're going to be flipping over to John chapter 11. So we'll read chapter 1. I'll make a few comments just for context, and we're going over to John chapter 11. All right, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, has not understood it. All right, we've, we've looked at these verses pretty in depth over the last uh, two weeks. I just want to remind you, right, what John is telling us is, is that when Jesus became flesh, it was God stepping in to recreate, right? In the same way in Genesis 1, God spoke a word, let there be light, and it dispelled the darkness. In John chapter 1, God is the word. And, and he is the light, and he dispels the darkness by actually becoming human, by taking on flesh. And, and, and in his human form, Jesus was fully alive. It says, in him was life. He, he was alive like we want to be alive. He was fully human like we want to be fully human. There was no internal conflict with him of motivation. There, there was no voice of, of the inner critic constantly tearing him down or trying to puff him up with pride. There was no conflict of motivation. He was always motivated by love for God and love for others. He was human as we want to be human. He lived life as we only wish we could. And every single day we wish we had what he had in him was life. He was fully alive and his life was the light of men. Right? He came into this dark world and, and the way he did life, that, that, that both the inner peace as well as the driving passion, it, it just shone in a dark world. There was a contrast between our self-protection, self-preservation, our, our internal need to keep what we have and get more with, with his uh, constant motivation to glorify God and love others. Right? The simple generosity of life, his, his unwillingness to cater to the rules of his age, to gain the approval of the power players uh, of his culture. Right? He, was, he would challenge those who need to be challenged. He would comfort those who needed to be comforted. He would meet everyone where they were and extend to them the grace that was inherent to the love that was within him. He was light in our darkness. He wasn't fighting for life. He was resting in it. He wasn't stumbling in the darkness, hoping to find it. He was the embodiment of light. He was the embodiment of everything we wish we were and had everything we wish we had. And he came not just to show us our darkness, but to invite us into his light, to invite us into a new kind of life, his life, out of the insanity of a world committed to to trying to find the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it into the fullness of life of actually coming once again to receive the blessing of God instead of competing with God, trying to get it in ways he doesn't give it, right? All right, now we're going to head over to John chapter 11, and we're going to read a narrative over there. So flip over to John chapter 11, and uh, John chapter 11 is on page 897 in our Bibles. So if you're using one of our Bibles, you're heading over to page 897, John chapter 11. It's a fairly long narrative this morning. I I'm going to tell you what, man, I wrote and rewrote this sermon about half a dozen times this week. Um, this was a hard sermon to write for me, um, and uh, which means that I wrote a whole lot and deleted a whole lot. That's typically how that works, um, and, and it kind of came to a culmination last night where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to John 11. I deleted everything I had written, and I uh, got up this morning and just wrote it from John 11, uh, and it's because this chapter, I think, really does embody what we need to hear um, from uh, the comfort of the Advent, right? Uh, and I wanted to read those verses because if you pay attention in chapter 11, you're going to see that John continues that theme of light and darkness in this chapter. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it, 
But if it is something you want to read about, meditate on, spend more time with, I'll tell you, it's very rewarding. John weaves this imagery of light and darkness throughout his gospel at critical points, bringing it back into the narrative. And he does that in chapter 11 as well. So let's take a look at 11. And we're going to read verses 1 through 44. All right, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with the ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard of it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you want to go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, and, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us all go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated at the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but she was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in her house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, uh, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said those things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Um, John 11. Uh, in John 11, I, I think we actually see a really, really compelling glimpse at how the word become flesh. Jesus himself dealt with anger. The way he dealt with the reality that things are not the way they are supposed to be. And the provocation of his spirit in response to that. You're like, Steve, where did he get angry? We just read this whole thing and, and, and I didn't see anger. I, he wept and, and he was sad. And, but how do you get anger? Well, take a look at verses 32 and 33. In verses 32, um, wrong verses. Don't look at 32 and 33. <laughs> this is what happens when you write early in the morning. Oh, it is 32 and 33. I'm back in chapter uh, 10. That's also what happens when you don't sleep well and you wake up at 4 a.m. All right, 32 and 33. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping. All right, so in in, in a Jewish custom, um, when someone died, uh, a family would often hire professional mourners. Mourning was a big deal in the Jewish culture. And so the entire village would come out. And in fact, they would pay professional mourners to come and wail. Because it was in the wailing of the professional mourners that often the family found their voice of sorrow. Right? It was, it was a very, very communal culture. They, they believed in the power of community. And, and they believed that there was something in experiencing these deep emotions together. So don't think of it like a show. It wasn't meant for show. Like they weren't hiring mourners so that they could look better than their neighbors. It was, it was a way of sharing their grief with one another and with the community, knowing that in entering into the grief of others, it would help them explore and discover their own. And so this entire entourage shows up in front of Jesus, right? Mary came to him and the mourners thought Mary was going to the, to the, uh, to the tomb. And so they were coming with her. Her, to, to mourn with her, to wail with her, to cry with her. And instead, they all came to Jesus. And Jesus sees all of these people come up, and they are, they are wrecked. They're just wrecked. They're, they're in sorrow. They're broken. They're crying, right? And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews that had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. All right, I think this is one of those cases where um, the translators... Maybe you're being a little bit too polite, okay? Um, uh, many would argue that, in fact, the NIV, the ESV, the, the different translations don't really capture the essence here. When it says he was deeply moved, um, the Greek word here um, means, it, deeply moved is a good translation. It just isn't explicit enough for us. In extra-biblical Greek, it was used to describe the snorting of a horse when it was upset. So you get that sound in your head, you kind of think of that. 
right? It's, and, and, and then you translate that to human emotion. The word is often used to, to mean anger, outrage, indignance. So it's, it's not just deeply moved like, oh yeah, that's a touching moment. It's like deeply moved to anger, deeply moved to indignation, deeply moved to outrage, right? Um, he, like the snoring of a horse, like a, Jesus finds himself provoked in this moment. As he sees them coming toward him, he is provoked with deep emotion. And that emotion, no small part of it is anger, outrage. So what's he angry with? Right? It says that he is deeply moved and, and troubled. That word troubled means, um, uh, anxious or, or kind of stirred up in his anger, right? What's he angry with? Well, there's two leading thoughts, and I think both honestly are right. John often does this. He tells this narrative, and, and he tells us what's happening, but he leaves a lot of open-ended questions. That's very John. John loves for us to, to have to sit with the text and kind of explore it and spend our time with it, right? He doesn't tell us what to think. He, invo- he invites us into experiencing the story and then allows us to discover the meaning in the story. He's, he's a, a very powerful storyteller. And, and there are two leading thoughts about what actually provokes Jesus to anger here. And I think both are right. Um, the first is, is purely his response to the fact that his friend is dead. Lazarus was his friend. Mary and Martha were, are his, his friends. And then when he sees his friends wrecked in sorrow, it stirs him, right? When it says he wept, that was a genuine emotional response to the brokenness and the sorrow of the moment, right? And, and I want you to have that picture in your mind because this is God's posture toward our suffering. God doesn't stand apart from and separate from our pain. He enters into it. And in fact, he knows it more deeply and clearly than we do, and he weeps with us. He shares sorrow with us. He is angry with us. His friend was dead, and, and here he was confronted with the sorrow and the loss, the brokenhearted love, so looking at, at Mary and looking at this community powerless in the face of death. Right? Powerless in the face of death, even though there was this deep, holy, beautiful love Death and an unwelcome intruder comes in and, and breaks it, right? They, they are powerless to protect and, and keep their love alive. This is not the way it's supposed to be. If you've ever faced the death of a loved one, you know that's going to be the fundamental heart cry. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It's an injustice. You feel defrauded and robbed. You feel like something, something horrible has broken in and taken from you what shouldn't be taken. It is an outrage. In the face of this pure grief of loss, he is moved to both sorrow and outrage. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But there's something else going on here too. Jesus had told them already that he was life incarnate. He had told Mary, I I am the resurrection, right? In verses 24 through 27, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus is like, I am the resurrection. Like, that's good theology, Mary. Like, that's good. But I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the embodiment of life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She says, oh yeah, of course I do. But we find out later in the story, when he says to remove the stone, she's the first one to object. Lord, he shall stinketh, to quote the KJV, right? It's been too long. You're too late. If you had shown up on time, you could have healed him, but, but now it's too late. They believed, but they didn't believe. He pulled back the curtain and revealed that he was the resurrection of life. He showed them something of the nature of reality that they could never see had it not been revealed to them. And yet, while they are standing in the very presence of life himself, the light of the world made flesh, they grieved like they were still trapped in the darkness. They said they believed, but they were ensnared in their unbelief. And that made him angry. He was stirred. He was provoked. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, I want you to catch this. His anger here isn't bitterness at them. It's not disappointment with them. It's not rejection of them. It was anger that that even their response to him was not the way it was supposed to be. When the light of the world arrives in the world, the world should receive him and celebrate their newfound freedom. They were standing in the presence of the light. They had believed in Jesus, but they were still walking bound to the darkness of unbelief. And that made him angry. Not at them, but for them. These were his people, his loved ones, his children. And he had set them free, but they were still walking in slavery. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Verse 38. um, Then Jesus deeply moved again. There's that Greek word again that talks about that that snorting of the horse, that that provocative anger of, of being incensed, right? Then deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And he said, take away the stone. Deeply moved, he came to the tomb. Or the stone rolled away, spoke a word, and Lazarus came forth, right? He prayed a prayer. I love the way, I love the way he's like giving it a meta-narrative. He's like, I'm going to pray this prayer to you, Father, out loud. Not because I'm afraid you're not going to hear me, but because they won't hear me if I don't say it out loud. So I'm going to say it out loud so they know what's going on here, okay? I'm just going to, again, I'm going to let them in to an inner true reality that I am never separate from my Father, that my will is never divorced from His, that I, I walk in perfect union with, with, with my Father, right? So I'm, I'm going to reveal this to you. And then He speaks the Word and out walks Lazarus. Well, out hops Lazarus. That's a really humorous scene to me, right? The dude's hopping out. He's bound with linen. He still has the face cloth on. And nobody does anything. You know, like, like Jesus is finally like, hey, y'all, you want to let him loose, right? I think you might want to unbind him, okay? Come on, come on, right? They're just in so much shock that he actually has to tell them what to do when it should be fairly obvious. Now, I'd, again, don't criticize them. I would have done the same exact thing, right? Um, but, but what I want you to see is, is it was still, even in the face of the tomb, even as he knew he was going to speak a word to raise him from the dead, he's still provoked in his heart. That provocation 
The anger and the love are commingled and coexist. They're not in contradiction to one another. They're an expression of one another. Because he loves, he is angry. Because he wants them to have the life that he created them to have. Because he wants them to have the freedom that he has, he has come to set them loose into. He is provoked. His indignation, his anger was the healthy and right response to the outrage of death and unbelief. But how he processed that anger was really instructive for us because he models for us how to be angry but not sin. And I believe he gives us a pattern to follow as we learn to process our own anger, our own outrage. So here's the cliff note summary of the rest of the sermon, and then I'm going to give it to you, okay? So here's the cliff note summary, the, the three main points we're going to go through. Jesus' experience of anger. It was holy. Why? Because it was anchored to his faith, it was comforted by his hope, and it was expressed in his love. So let's talk first of all about the fact that it was anchored uh, to his faith. Um, at the start of the narrative, right, at the beginning of chapter 11, I don't know if you remember that part, it was kind of weird. Right? Jesus gets news that Lazarus is sick. Jesus knows he's going to die, but he doesn't do anything. He doesn't leave. Right? He's like, oh, no, no, no. He's, it's not unto death. Which Jesus has taken the really long view here. <laughs> right? Like, past death and resurrection. Like, like, death isn't the end of this story, but we're going to wait till he dies. Okay? And then when he dies, he's like, all right, now it's time for us to go. And then the disciples are like, hey, wait a minute, it's dangerous for us there. He's already dead. <laughs> what? Why would we go? And he's like, come on, you guys. Let's, now is the time, right? Now is the appropriate time for us to go. It's a really weird start to the narrative. Jesus knew Lazarus was sick. He knew that he was going to die, but he stayed away. Have you ever had a circumstance in your life where you were just pleading with God to intervene and he didn't? You ever had one of those moments where you're sending word to God, now is the time. Now is the time. You need to show up, and you need to show up now. And all you get back is silence. You ever had one of those moments? The sisters did. Mary and Martha did. They sent word to Jesus, and Jesus intentionally stayed away. He purposely delayed traveling to Bethany in order to allow Lazarus to die. So the sisters reached out to him. Why? Because they had faith that he could stop death. If he would just show up, they had seen him heal a blind man. They had seen him heal sick people. They had seen him touch lepers and the leprosy. Like, like he would touch leprosy and instead of the leprosy spreading to him, man, the vitality of his life spread to the leper, <laughs> right? They knew that if he showed up, Lazarus would be okay. But he didn't come. He waited until Lazarus was dead. And, and then when he set out, um, he did so. He waited until Lazarus was dead so that the journey, the four-day journey, uh, would make sure he was good and dead. Like it was very clear. He wanted him in the tomb. He wanted him buried. He wanted him not in the preparation process, not arriving right after. Like he wanted him dead and good and dead, right? Um, and, and then he sets out. And then um, take a look at 21 through 27. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give to you. And Jesus said to him, your brother will rise again. And then he goes on and tells her that I am the resurrection and the life. Why would Jesus delay coming? 
If the death of his friend brought him so much grief, which it actually did, he wasn't faking, how could he let it happen? A simple answer from our text is that he wanted to grow their faith. And you're like, man, isn't there an easier way to do that? Couldn't he, couldn't he have just come and given them a teaching with a good illustration? Right? Couldn't, couldn't he have exercised his power in, in a lesser way? Right? A little less dramatic, a little less painful? Um, why? Why did he have to do it this way? See, they were confident that he could heal their sickness, but they had no concept of his power to raise the dead. So Jesus allowed them to go through the suffering in order to grow their faith. Had they not seen it and experienced it, it wouldn't have impacted them the way that it did. He used what he hated to help them grow in what he loved. And that is one of the most annoying things about God and one of the most comforting things. God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. The only way we're going to be able to navigate that is if we stay anchored to our faith. That we have a God who's telling a better story for our our lives than we would tell for ourselves. We absolutely have to believe that the Christ who came is coming again, that the God who sent Jesus to die and rise again is the same God who's at work in my life, in the daily sufferings, in the losses, in the things that don't make sense, in the parts where I'm like, God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. That we don't lose faith that there is a God telling a better story simply because we're in a chapter of the story that we really hate. That we don't lose faith that, that, that we have a God who has the power to weave all human history together into a beautiful tapestry that at the end of the day will be the story of resurrection, redemption, and restoration because we find ourselves in a particularly painful and heinous chapter of that story. God will take certain threads that in and of themselves are full of pain and ugliness, injustice and suffering. And those threads will be woven together into a beautiful picture. It's the only way that we can be promised, as Scripture does, that all tears will be wiped away. Do you realize that God will not waste any of your suffering? Does your faith allow God to be at work through the brokenness of this world to ultimately bring together its redemption and restoration? Recognizing that He allows what He hates in order to accomplish what He loves? See, Jesus could be patient with the pain of the present because he was confident of the glory of the future. He never lost faith in his father. And you're like, well, that's really easy because it wasn't really his pain. It was Mary and Martha's. It was mine. Yeah, don't forget who we're talking about here. This is the same Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that cried out, my God, my God. If there is any other way for this to be done, Let this cup pass from me. As he is sweating drops of blood, because he is so intense that the capillaries are breaking and his sweat is mixing with blood. He understood what it meant to trust the pain of a single chapter of his story to the God who is telling a better story. 
He, he's not a God who separates himself from our suffering, divorces himself from our pain, is, is, is unfeeling or unconnected. He is deeply connected. And he is deeply committed to working through what is broken to bring what is whole, to bring life out of death. This invites us to recognize that no matter what we're going through, no matter what injustice, what suffering, what darkness, it isn't the final chapter of the story. If God allows you to linger in your pain, which He will do, not because He's mad or evil, not because He's forgotten you or abandoned you. If God allows you to linger in your pain, it is because He has something better for you on the other side. It is because there is a plan and it won't make any sense to you right now. And it may not make any sense to you in the short term of your life. I'm fully convinced there are certain things that happen in our lives. We're not going to have any sense of why or how God is at work in it until we actually see the completion of the story. If our anger is not anchored to our faith, instead of being angry, that the world is not the way it's supposed to be, we will be angry at the God who hasn't fixed it yet. Our anger will shift from holy anger at the brokenness of the world to unholy anger blaming God for the brokenness of the world. Even though we're the ones who broke it. Our faith needs to be the anchor of our anger. So that we are reoriented to the story of God. So that we can be angry. We can even be outraged without allowing our anger to actually sink us in the bitterness and the lostness of unbelief. So Jesus was anchored. He anchored his trust in his Father which allowed him to see the long story and, and work through the pain of the short-term suffering of life, right? He was anchored for, in trust to his father, and that gave him the comfort of hope in the midst of, of the brokenness. No matter how dark the situation became, no, no matter, no matter how, how ugly the situation became, over the course of Jesus' life or over the course of John 11, Right. No matter if, if Lazarus is dead, no matter if Martha and Mary are full of doubt, no matter if everybody is, is, is even like doing that kind of, um, uh, insulting, non-insulting thing. Like if you had only been here, if you had only been here, which is a very, very subtle accusation, you weren't here. You could have been and you chose not to be. Right. Even, even in the face of all of that, when the people he loved, the people he was, he was living for, suffering for, and ultimately would die and rise again for, were looking at him full of doubt and even accusation, Jesus felt the encroaching darkness fighting against him and resisting him. He had an unwavering hope because he had a firm faith. Now we need to see that his hope was quite a bit different from our hope. Our hope often is that we're going to avoid suffering. Our hope is that we're going to be able to avoid the things that go wrong, the things that hurt, the things that are broken. We, we want somehow an exemption card, a get out of free, free, get out of jail free card. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we show up on the brokenness of the world and it's like, wait, wait, not me. I should be exempt from this. I shouldn't have to deal with this. That's not the way it's supposed to be, but it should be for me, right? Our hope is that we're going to avoid suffering. 
or that those that we love will be able to avoid all pain. His hope was that the darkness would be defeated and that those that he loved would be freed into the glory of light. See, suffering wasn't the enemy. Being swallowed by darkness was. Suffering is a tool that God actually uses to deliver us into the light out of our darkness because we love the darkness. Because we're so accustomed to the darkness, we don't even know we're enslaved to it. God will even use the pain of this life to free us from the things that give us that pain that we might be in the light. God would use suffering to grow their faith and recenter their hope so that they could be truly free. Verses 43 or 44. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go, right? This is a really dramatic moment in the story. Mary and Martha, can you imagine how overcome they were with relief? Like, oh man, didn't see that coming, right? Go from absolute brokenness of hopelessness and loss to like, (laughs) he just walked out or hopped, right? What in the world? They were overcome, I'm sure, with relief, wonder, and joy. I'm sure they rushed forward and hugged him. I'm sure they took the linen strips off and the face cloth and, and, and clothed him and ate with him and celebrated with him. But listen to me, listen to me. Jesus knew, even as they were unwrapping the linen strips to set him free, he knew that this miracle only postponed the inevitable loss of death. They thought their problem was solved. They were suddenly like, God answered our prayer. The brokenness is gone. Everything is healed. Everything is good. And yet, all he had done was postpone the inevitable. The one who had died and had just been raised from the dead would die again. Lazarus was given an extension of life. Not a get-out-of-jail-free card. He was not exempt from the brokenness of the world or any future suffering in this world. I saw a video, kind of a weird, one of those gotcha videos that's kind of like, oh, hey, that's really cool, that's so cute. And then it's like, oh, that's so sad. They had rescued a seal that had been trapped in a net and they they cut this net off and then they rehabilitated rehabilitated the seal and took care of the seal and, and then they took him out in a boat and they're filming it in this huge moment of celebration. They release the seal out into the ocean and a, and a shark comes and eats it. Yeah, um, not, not a feel-good moment, right? Um, now, if you knew that that was going to be the end of the story, would you do all the work to get to that point in the story? Jesus did. Because he had hope that a greater resurrection was coming. Even in that moment, they thought, this is what we were asking for. And he's, he's still sitting there like, you, you guys still don't get it. This isn't what you were asking for. This is just a small taste of what you're asking for. This is just a foreshadowing of what you really want. This is just a down payment of the greater blessing. You'll get there because I'm going to give it to you, right? But even in that moment, as they're celebrating, there had to be that moment, there was that ongoing grief and provocation of his heart as he sees Lazarus raised from the dead, but still bound for death. Not yet truly free because Jesus himself had not yet died and and risen again, right? But he knew resurrection was coming and, and, and that all that was wrong would be set right. That in this moment, even this resurrection, were it not the end of the story, it's just a moment of the story, is leading up to the greater redemption or restoration, that all things would be set right. 
We get off base when our anger is pointed our, at, our, at our discomfort as if we were owed better. Listen, our hope isn't that we will avoid suffering or that we will be exempt from the brokenness of this world. We're not promised any such thing. In fact, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Our hope is that God will use that suffering in a redemptive way in our lives to bless us and free us in ways we never could be set free. That he will ultimately lead us into the greater blessing and the better end of our story through the process. That there is a process by which God is moving us progressively into a greater experience of that freedom. That's the comfort of hope. That even in the midst of the sorrow, we are not abandoned. Even when we feel completely alone, we are not alone. Even when things seem like they're all going wrong, they're not because we have a God who's going to turn them right. Our anger is, our, our anger is anchored in our faith. Our anger is comforted by our hope. And that allows us in our anger to be motivated by love. So Jesus' anger didn't compete with his love. It was actually an essential expression of it. When he was faced with the death of Lazarus, Jesus was angry, right? This is not the way it's supposed to be. And when he was faced with the lack of faith from his friends, he was angry. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But his anger wasn't at them. His anger didn't come out of his wounded pride or, or his disappointed expectations. His anger was not at them, but for them because they were not yet walking in the full freedom of light. He was angry at their slavery to the darkness. He was angry at the, the, the chains that were still on them because of their lack of faith. He was angry that they were not yet free. And that holy anger is always a manifestation of love. Not an expression of, of, of self-interest or self-righteousness. Listen, if, if our anger kills our love, our anger is not holy. Holy anger is always an expression of love and coexists with love. It doesn't, it doesn't exempt love or destroy love. In fact, that's the only reason we can obey Jesus' command to love our enemies. Right? He's like, what benefit is it if you love your friends? I tell you, love your enemies. Right? He wasn't, that wasn't hyperbolic, right? He, he, well, that wasn't like a saying that you're supposed to put on your coffee mug and forget it actually exists. That was actually an expectation of what it means for a follower of Christ, somebody who's being set free into the glorious kingdom of Christ. We are to love our enemies, not despise them, not, not harbor hatred toward them, not celebrate their, their inefficiencies and, 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 and their, like, we are to love them, right? We are to love and be angry simultaneously. We are never to allow ourselves to hate the abusers, even if that abuse is toward us or those that we love. It doesn't mean that we don't resist the injustice. It doesn't mean that we don't confront the abuser. It doesn't mean that we don't work for justice. But it means we never allow ourselves to hate those that work in justice. The only way we are going to be able to be angry and yet love He's by saying, anchored in our faith and encouraged by our hope. Recognize that we live between the two advents, that all there is around us is not all there is, that the story we see is not the story that will be told, that, that the brokenness that seems to be winning today will not win. We know the end of the story. And it's really, really good. It's resurrection. It's life. It is a recreation of of, of humanity in the likeness of Christ, where we will be completely free 
full of life ourselves, at, at peace with one another, at peace with ourselves, at peace with our God, joyfully productive and, and abundantly rested. We will be human as humans were created to be. That's the end of the story. That is where God is taking us because Christ is raised from the dead. I too shall be raised out of the brokenness of this world. We know the end of the story. And as we remind ourselves of who God is and what He's done, it allows us to be angry, but not sin. To be angry at the darkness, but not to allow our anger to pull us back into the darkness. To be angry at the darkness without ourselves expressing that anger by indulging in the darkness. It allows us to walk in the light even as Jesus is in the light. Because in the light there's freedom. And in the light there's life. And in the light there's resurrection and revival for your weary soul. Alright, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We're going to share communion. And, uh, and then we are going to sing our way out this morning. We pray for us. Father, we thank you. That you love us. So much that you sent your son. We thank you that, that you didn't abandon us to the brokenness. You stepped into the brokenness. You, even though you were provoked by that brokenness continually. You didn't allow that provocation to turn your heart against us. But instead, your heart broke for us. Even as we were the ones who rebelled against you, even as, even as we were the ones working against you, even as we do it even now in our lives sometimes, thinking that we deserve to be treated like God, even though we're not God, even, even when we're trying to find the fullness of life in ways you don't give it, even, even when we're competing with you instead of resting in you. You love us. You love us. And, and you're provoked by our sin. You are provoked. And that provocation just causes you to work more, to set us free. We thank you for that kind of love. We thank you that you are a God we can trust to tell a better story for our lives. Teach us what it means to be angry but not to sin. Teach us what it means to love and to rest knowing that you are God and you have won for us a future we could never gain for ourselves. We thank you for that love. And all God's people said, Amen.